Hello, and welcome to The Face of Bible John, a true crime podcast investigating a series of unsolved murders in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, from 1968 to 1969. I'm your host, Louise McGregor. Please note that this podcast will contain descriptions of physical and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. An autopsy confirmed that Helen Puttock, the latest victim of the as-yet-unnamed Glasgow serial killer, had been beaten, raped and strangled. The autopsy also confirmed that she'd been menstruating at the time of her death and that someone, presumably her killer, had placed her sanitary pad underneath her armpit. Bite marks were also found on her arm. A stain on her tights was found to be semen and the sample was kept for further analysis. A search of the enclosed yard where her body had been found turned up a cheap cufflink lying in the mud. Police speculated that this might have been torn from the murderer's clothing. One thing that wasn't found was Helen's red handbag. When Jeannie Langford heard about her sister's murder, she was understandably distraught, and it was some time before she could talk to the police. When she was able to, though, it quickly became clear that she was a vital witness. She had spoken with the main suspect several times during the evening and had even shared a taxi with him and Helen. No other witnesses in the case spent such a length of time with a suspect or could provide such a detailed description. During questioning, Jeannie Langford also recalled additional details not mentioned by other witnesses. The man who had spent the evening with Helen Puttock had good teeth, she remembered, but two of his front teeth were crooked and overlapped and a tooth on the upper right-hand side was missing. She also remembered that he was wearing some form of metal badge on the lapel of his jacket and that he often rubbed this as if it was somehow important to him. She thought that he had said in the taxi that his surname was Templeton or perhaps Sempleson. Jeannie's evidence was widely publicised, but the police identified her to the press as Jeannie Williams in order to protect her identity from reporters and, possibly, from the killer who might seek an opportunity to eliminate a vital witness. With this new information, Police were initially very confident about catching the killer. They were even more encouraged when Jeannie Langford confirmed that the painting produced for the police by George Lennox Patterson following the murder of Mima MacDonald was an uncanny likeness. She later said, My whole inside just churned. To me, the resemblance was there. When I looked at it, it's a funny feeling. It's like something just turns in your guts, you know. It's kind of like a wee shiver or something. When I saw it, I thought, God, that's a terrific resemblance. This was extremely important because it seemed to confirm that the same killer had murdered both Mima MacDonald and Helen Puttock. Jeannie spent time with Lennox Patterson, who made small changes to the painting following her instructions to make it even more accurate. The revised and full-colour version of the painting was sent to the press and appeared in a number of Scottish newspapers, as well as being featured on several television news shows. Jeannie also worked with Glasgow City Police PhotoFit technicians to produce another version of the face of the killer, the features on this composite image very similar to those on the painting created by Lennox Patterson. With such striking and seemingly accurate pictures of the killer, plus what the police knew about him through talking to witnesses, it seemed very unlikely that he could escape detection for long. Posters featuring his face appeared all over Glasgow and further afield. Because of his unfashionably short, neat hair, and the fact that some witnesses had noticed that he wore a type of watch favoured by servicemen at the time, it was considered that he might have been a member of the armed forces. His picture and description were circulated to British Army bases and Royal Navy ships and bases around the world. On November 4th, 1969, 
the Glasgow Herald ran a front-page story with the headline, Bible-quoting man sought by murder hunt police. This included the following detailed description of the man Jeannie Langford had described. A man aged between 25 and 30, 5 foot 10 to 6 foot tall, of medium build, with light auburn reddish hair, styled short and brushed to the right. He had blue-grey eyes, nice straight teeth with one tooth on the upper right jaw overlapping the next tooth, fine features, and is generally of smart modern appearance. He is dressed in brownish flecked single-breasted suit, the jacket of which has three or four buttons and high lapels. He has a knee-length brownish coat of tweed or garbadine, a light blue shirt, and a dark tie with red diagonal stripes. However, it was John Quinn, at that time the crime reporter working for another Glasgow newspaper, The Evening Times, who provided the name which has become indelibly associated with this killer. He rushed from a police press conference about the murder to his car, which was equipped with a radio phone. He called his editor with the story and, almost as an afterthought, added, let's call him Bible John. The name stuck, and the legend of Bible John, the religious zealot serial killer, became part of Glaswegian and Scottish folklore. Quinn was later asked what made him choose the name for the killer. He said, I did not do it, as was said later in some books on the subject, because of a flair for the dramatic. I did it merely as the seemingly perfect tag to jog the memory of those whose paths may have crossed with the dapper dancer of death. Many, many people responded to the police appeals for information and identified a bewildering array of men as Bible John, mainly on the basis of a resemblance to the painting or photo of it. Detectives investigating Helen Puttock's murder spent a great deal of time following up on these leads. Jeannie Langford attended many lineups and accompanied police to a number of locations to surreptitiously look at men who had been identified as resembling the portrait, but she failed to identify any of them as the man her sister had spent the evening with. A team of 14 policemen and two policewomen were detailed to stake out the Barrowlands Ballroom and other dance halls across Glasgow. They focused on the notorious over 25 nights, but their efforts failed to identify a single new suspect, though many of them found that their dancing improved. One officer told a reporter that when this inquiry started, I could hardly dance a step. Now I get better every week. Other detectives spent time analysing British military and NATO records. The gap between the murder of Patricia Docker and Mima MacDonald was 18 months. If these murders were committed by a single killer, could the long gap be explained by the killer being posted abroad during this period? This line of inquiry also failed to locate a suspect. Detectives spoke to more than 50 tailors in and around Glasgow in the hope that one might recall a customer who had a brown-flecked, single-breasted suit made or altered, but this didn't produce anything useful. A survey of dentists in the area produced a list of over 5,000 men with overlapping upper front teeth. Most were found and excluded from the inquiry. Jeannie Langford had also recalled that, in the taxi, Bible John had spoken about golf, and he had mentioned being present when his cousin achieved a hole-in-one. Police visited over 400 golf courses across Scotland in the hope that someone might remember a player scoring a hole-in-one while accompanied by a tall, red-haired man. None did. Members of dozens of churches in and around Glasgow were visited in the hope that they might recognise Bible John as a member of their congregation, but none of those interviewed were able to identify the man. Leads continued to pour in. Detectives took over 50,000 witness statements and inquiries extended as far as Hong Kong and America. None led to a viable suspect, though over 1,000 men were identified, interviewed and subsequently eliminated from the inquiry. The search for Bible John was the biggest manhunt ever taken by a Scottish police force, with, at one point, over 100 detectives and police officers working full-time on the inquiry. All this effort, though, led police absolutely nowhere. In early 1970, 
the Scottish Daily Record newspaper even paid for a Dutch psychic and parapsychologist, Gerard Quasse, to visit Glasgow to help in the search. Quasse had allegedly helped the Dutch police in murder and missing persons inquiries, and he had gained considerable publicity in January 1970 when he had made predictions during the investigation of the kidnapping of Muriel Mackay in England. Despite Quasse's involvement, Mrs Mackay's body was never found. Quasse told the Daily Record that Bible John lived in the governoria of Glasgow, and he provided a detailed description of the killer's house. Police did attempt to use this information, but unsurprisingly, it didn't produce a suspect, and most people felt it was a waste of time. Despite all the leads they received, and having what appeared to be a good likeness of the killer, police never arrested or named any suspects during the investigation. It was only later that information became available that gave some insight into the inquiry. Glasgow police detective Les Brown worked on the Bible John investigation, and in 2005 he published his autobiography, Glasgow Crime Fighter, The Les Brown Story. In one chapter of this book, Brown discussed a man who had given his name as John White to the police during the Bible John investigation. Brown was present when the man was arrested in late 1969 outside the Barrowland Ballroom following an altercation with a woman. Brown and other officers noted the man's resemblance to the Bible John portrait, Photofit, and took him to the Marine Police Station. However, other police officers there said that it wasn't possible that he could be Bible John because he lacked the crooked teeth described by Jeannie Langford. Brown's suspicions were further raised when it became known that the man had given a false name and address to the arresting officers. He was actually John Edgar from the Gorbals, an area of Glasgow not far from the Queen's Park district where one of the bodies had been found. In his book, Brown claimed that years later he spoke to another detective who had arrested a man at the Barrowlands Ballroom in 1969 following a different fight there. The man had a head injury that required hospital treatment and he was taken there by police to whom he had given the name John White. However, when he was released from handcuffs, the man immediately ran away from the hospital and the police. Brown claims that this man was also John Edgar, and that despite the lack of crooked teeth, he and other officers considered this man to be a viable suspect for the Bible John murders. John Edgar was 27 in 1969, so his age is certainly within the range described by witnesses who saw Bible John. But when Brown's book was published, the 63-year-old Edgar contacted the press to make an irate rebuttal of these claims and to offer to provide DNA to allow him to be eliminated as a suspect. This was never done, but it doesn't seem likely that a real killer would make such an offer. Edgar was also interviewed by detectives following his arrest outside the Barrowland Ballroom, and they were satisfied that he could not have been the killer. Overall, and despite Brown's suspicions, it seems unlikely that John Edgar is Bible John. Another man interviewed by police during the initial investigation was John Irvin McInnes, a 30-year-old ex-soldier who had served as a private in the Scots Guard and then had returned to Glasgow where he married and worked as a furniture salesman. He came from a family with a strong religious background, but he was also known to be a gambler and heavy drinker. McInnes was positively identified as having been in the Barrowland Ballroom on 29th of October 1969, the night before Helen Puttock met her killer, and he resembled the description of Bible John given by Jeannie Langford. The problem was, McInnes was put in more than one identity parade organised by the police, but Jeannie Langford and several other witnesses who had seen the man with Helen Puttock at the ballroom failed to pick him out. Some officers remained convinced that McInnes was a potential suspect, but even when pressed, Jeannie was vehement that he wasn't the man. He didn't have the crooked front teeth, and his jug ears, as she called them, were quite different to the man who had gone off in the taxi with Helen. Police also investigated McInnes' clothes and found nothing similar to the suit that Bible John had been wearing on the evening Helen was killed. For these reasons, McInnes was eliminated as a suspect in 1969. In 1980, John McInnes committed suicide. 
He was buried in Stonehouse Cemetery in Lanarkshire alongside his father. In 1995, a cold case review of the Bible John case was carried out by Strathclyde Police. One of the things being looked at was the possibility of using DNA to identify the killer of Helen Puttock. A small sample of semen and a hair, both presumably originating from her murderer, had been found on her clothing, and these had been frozen and preserved during the initial inquiry. By 1996, new technology meant that it was possible to use DNA sampling to compare these with a sample taken from a suspect to definitively identify or rule them out. A bite mark had also been found on Helen Puttock's body, and it was believed that casts and pictures of this could also be used to identify her killer. The cold case review looked again at John McInnes, and his sister was persuaded to give a DNA sample to the police. The family hoped that this would finally exclude McInnes from the inquiry, but instead, it seemed to put him firmly in the frame. The sample from the sister was said to be an 80% match with DNA extracted from the semen found on Helen Puttock's clothing, making it seem virtually certain that McInnes was the murderer. Strathclyde Police passed this information on to the Crown Office, who approved an exhumation order of the body of John McInnes. On February 2nd, 1996, in a welter of publicity, McInnes' body was removed from its grave in Stonehouse Cemetery and taken to Glasgow University Medical Department. Detective Chief Inspector James McEwen of Strathclyde Police told reporters that he was very confident that the Bible John case was finally about to be closed. But Jeannie Langford disagreed. She was interviewed while the DNA testing was ongoing and repeated her certainty that McInnes was not the man, telling a reporter, they think it's him, I don't, that's all there is to it. Reporters waited for a follow-up announcement from Strathclyde Police. And waited. And waited. We now know that Jeannie Langford was right. DNA testing by police scientists failed to find a match between DNA recovered from McInnes' body and the sample taken from the Helen Puttock crime scene. The Procurator Fiscal then approved sending the samples to the Department of Biological Anthropology of Cambridge University for further and more detailed testing. They, in turn, asked for assistance from the Institute of Medicine in Berlin. After a great many tests, police were forced to accept that there simply was not a DNA match. The scientists from Cambridge University finally noted that the results of these DNA analyses provide no evidence to suggest that the semen stain or hair left near the body of Helen Puttock originated from John McInnes. The analysis of the bite mark also proved inconclusive. The body of John McInnes was found to have dentures. No dental records could be found, so nothing could be ascertained about when he received these or what his teeth looked like before he had them. In early July 1996, Strathclyde police told the family of John McInnes that testing had definitively ruled him out as the killer of Helen Puttock. This was an embarrassing admission for Strathclyde police, who had seemed very confident that McInnes was Bible John, especially when it was revealed that the exhumation and testing had cost the taxpayer almost £1 million. The Shadow Home Affairs spokesman, Labour Member of Parliament for Dumbarton, John McFall, said, We know the police have a duty to investigate unsolved murders. This case seems to be a textbook example of how not to go about it. In 2005, Strathclyde Police conducted another review of the Bible John case, and they asked up to 10 men who had been interviewed at the time of the original inquiry to provide blood samples for DNA testing. None of the samples provided a match with the sample from Helen Puttock's clothing, and scientists noted that the original samples had, by that time, deteriorated to the point where they were no longer usable for further DNA comparison testing. One other continuing strand of the inquiry was the search for the other John who had been present at the ballroom with Helen Jeanie and Bible John. This person hadn't come forward despite extensive publicity which made police believe that Jeanie's idea that he was a married man using a false name was correct. 
Police spent a great deal of time looking for this man, who became known as Castle Milk John, because that was where it was said that he'd lived. Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty, the man who led the Bible John inquiry, later told a reporter, One of my biggest regrets is that Castle Milk John never came forward. That was a bad break in the investigation. He would have been able to help. He was in Bible John's company that night. He may know something about the killer that would identify him. Bible John might have said he was a member of a golf club, or where he lived, or worked, or what his hobbies were. Despite an extensive investigation in the Castle Milk district in the south of Glasgow, the man was never found. Inevitably, when it didn't produce a result, the police investigation into the Bible John murders began to wind down. No police service can afford to continue to employ the sort of resources used by Glasgow City Police during this investigation for an extended period of time. Despite all the leads, all the work and all the effort, police charged no one with any of the murders. In 1972, Joe Beatty spoke about the case again. It is quite incredible that this man has eluded us. I am positive this man comes from Glasgow or nearby. He is between 25 and 30, between 5'10 and 6 foot tall, has light red hair, good features, blue-grey eyes and a smart modern appearance. There must be many people who know someone who looks like this artist's impression. Beatty also ruefully summed up his view on the police failure to find Bible John in a later interview given after his retirement in 1976. Sometimes you get the ones you shouldn't get, and you don't get the ones you should. This was one we should have got. We knew so much about him. There he was with his short haircut, his meticulous dress style, the patronising manner he had towards women. I guess he lived west of a line from Stirling to Lanark, either a serviceman or an ex-serviceman. Glasgow City Police ceased to exist in 1975, when it was absorbed during the creation of the much larger Strathclyde Police. That force was itself subsumed into a single Scottish police force, Police Scotland, in 2013. Despite that, the investigations into the murders of Patricia Docker, Mima MacDonald and Helen Puttock remain officially open. In 2018, a Police Scotland spokesperson said, The murders of Helen Puttock, Jemima MacDonald and Patricia Docker remain unsolved. However, as with all unresolved cases, they are subject to review and any new information about their deaths will be investigated. Long after the murders attributed to Bible John, in 2006, a man calling himself Pat McLaughlin was working as a handyman at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church in the Anderston area of Glasgow. Also working at the church as a cleaner was 23-year-old Angela Cluck, a student from Poland who was staying in the presbytery of the church. On 24th of September of that year, Cluck and McLaughlin were seen together at the church. Immediately after, both disappeared. On 29th of September, police found Angela Clock's body hidden under the floorboards under the church. She'd been beaten, raped and stabbed. At around the same time, police discovered that Pat McLaughlin was really Peter Tobin, a man placed on the sex offenders register after being convicted in 1994 of rape and assault, and for whom an arrest warrant had been issued in November 2005 after he moved from Paisley without notifying police, breaking the terms of his sentence. Tobin was arrested in London soon after, and in May 2007, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Angela Clock after a trial at the High Court in Edinburgh. Subsequently, Tobin was also found guilty of the murders of 15-year-old Vicky Hamilton and 18-year-old Dinah McNichol after their bodies were found buried in the garden of a house at Irvine Drive in Margate in which Tobin had previously lived. It was clear that Peter Tobin was a multiple murderer, and there were suspicions that he might also be a prolific serial killer, he was said to have boasted of committing over 50 murders. Tobin was originally from Glasgow, and when it was discovered that he was a regular attendee at the Barrowland Ballroom in the late 1960s, people began to wonder whether he might also be Bible John. At first, the evidence looked compelling. 
His first wife, Margaret, who he met in the barrel and ballroom, described him as being a very smart dresser who was also capable of being very charming. He was known to have used the alias John Semple on occasion, similar to the John Sempleson name which Jeannie Langford had heard Helen Pottock's killer using. In 2010, a new book about Bible John was published, The Lost British Serial Killer, written by David Wilson and Paul Harrison. This claimed that Tobin was Bible John. David Wilson is a well-known criminologist and is certain that Peter Tobin was Bible John. He said in an interview, I am as convinced as I'm able to be. As far as I am concerned, the case is closed. Following publication of the book, a woman named Julia Taylor came forward to say that she was certain that a smartly dressed man who had behaved threateningly towards her at the Barrel and Ballroom in the late 1960s was Peter Tobin. Another woman came forward the same year to claim that Tobin had sexually assaulted her in the Ballroom in 1968. Photographs of Tobin as a young man certainly seem to have a resemblance to the portrait of Bible John. At around the time of the Bible John murders, Tobin had a tooth removed from his upper jaw, which detectives thought might account for Jeannie Langford's description of crooked teeth. Tobin had also left Glasgow in late 1969, which might account for the sudden end to the killings by Bible John. Overall, Peter Tobin looked like a very good suspect, and in 2006, Strathclyde Police started Operation Anagram, an attempt to connect Tobin with unsolved Scottish murders, including the Bible John killings. Tobin, who is currently in prison with no prospect of ever being released, has steadfastly refused to cooperate with police. During one interview, he was asked to provide information about other murders in order to put the minds of family members at rest. He replied, I don't give a fuck about them. So the focus of the police team working on Operation Anagram was on collecting evidence from other witnesses. In terms of the Bible John killings, though, what they found didn't actually support the idea of Peter Tobin as Bible John. First of all, one thing that almost all eyewitnesses seemed to agree on was that Bible John was noticeably tall. Most estimated his height at between 5'10 and 6 foot. Some suggested that he was over 6 feet tall. Jeannie Langford was certain that he was tall because, she told police, she particularly noticed his teeth because her eyes were on a level with his mouth when she was talking to him. Peter Tobin is 5'9". Most witnesses remember Bible John as having red hair, but Tobin had fair hair at the time. In 1969, Peter Tobin was just 23. Most witnesses put the age of Bible John at 25 to 35, and the majority suggested that he was in his late 20s or early 30s. Perhaps most compellingly, when Jeannie Langford was shown a photograph of Peter Tobin taken in the 1960s by officers from Operation Anagram in 2006, she told them that she was certain he was not the man that she and Helen had shared a taxi with. Then there was the fact that Tobin was married to his first wife, Margaret McIntosh, at a registry office in Brighton on the 6th of August 1969, ten days before the murder of Mima MacDonald. His wife is certain that they remained together in Brighton until Tobin was arrested two weeks later by police officers from Glasgow who were looking for him in relation to a series of burglaries in the city. He was driven back up to Glasgow in handcuffs on the 20th of August. This means that Tobin certainly can't be the killer of the second Bible John victim, Mima MacDonald. Tobin also has a noticeable scar under his left eye, but no witness described Bible John as having such a scar, and we know that Tobin had the scar when he first met his wife in 1969. There are other circumstantial factors which suggest that Tobin wasn't Bible John, such as the fact that all Tobin's known victims were young women, aged from 15 to 23, and the oldest, Angelica Cluck, looked much younger, while Bible John's victims were older, with ages ranging from 25 to 32. All Bible John's victims were strangled, while all the known victims of Peter Tobin were stabbed. The bodies of all Peter Tobin's victims were buried or hidden, while there was no attempt to hide Bible John's victims. 
Operation Anagram was wound down in 2011, without being able to find any information to conclusively link Peter Tobin with any murders other than those he had already been convicted for. The deterioration of the DNA extracted from Helen Puttick's murder scene meant that this couldn't be used to finally include or exclude Tobin as a suspect in this case. Tobin's first wife, Margaret McIntosh, said in a newspaper interview when asked if she thought that Tobin might be Bible John in 2011, in some ways it would be convenient to learn he was Bible John, as he's behind bars and it would give the families of the victims some closure. Tobin is a monster. I knew that then, and tragically, it's been proved to be true time and time again since. Bible John must also have been a monster, but I don't believe it's the same man. Perhaps there's some comfort for us to believe that Peter Tobin must be Bible John. After all, no one likes to believe that numbers of serial killers live among us. So if a known multiple murderer was in Glasgow at around the appropriate time, then surely he must be Bible John. Sadly, killers like Tobin are less rare than we might like to imagine, and it's entirely possible that two multiple murderers were living in Glasgow at the same time in the late 1960s. An objective review of the facts provides nothing concrete to support the idea that Tobin is Bible John, and a number of pieces of evidence indicate that this might not be true. There is no doubt that Peter Tobin is an evil man and a multiple murderer, but that does not necessarily mean he must also be Bible John. However, Peter Tobin is not the only British multiple murderer who's been linked with the Bible John killings. You just listened to episode 3 of The Face of Bible John. Hosted, recorded and produced by Louise McGregor, co-written by Louise McGregor and Steve McGregor. Based on the book, The Face of Bible John, The Search for a Scottish Serial Killer by Steve McGregor. Thank you for listening.